Whew, amen and amen. Well, friends, whether you, today is your first day as a part of this family of God, whether you have long called this family your own, whether you are a recent addition to this family of God, welcome. It is so good to be worshiping together here at First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley on this second Sunday of Lent. Lent is a slowing season in the life of the church. In a straightaway between Christmas and Easter, when it's tempting to fly at bottleneck speed from the manger to the empty tomb, Lent is a deliberate speed bump, a time of reflection and contemplation of sacred music and honest prayer. It invites us to let our foot off the gas pedal, our drive to get to the next destination and apply the brake and in the process to reorient our attention from the destination to the journey, our surroundings, those we're traveling with, and maybe, just maybe, the baggage we're carrying with us. Questions are a little bit like speed bumps, too. In a season of discourse driven by the efficiency of periods and the urgency of exclamation points, question marks are big and inconvenient and slow. They force us to slow down, just like this Lenten season, and reflect, to shift gears from assumptions and certainties to curiosity, especially a good question. This Lent, we as a church family are slowing down by sitting with questions, and not just any questions, but questions posed by the master of good questions, whether talking to his disciples, the religious insiders, or the social outcasts, throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses questions beautifully, masterfully, to uncover hard truths and reveal divine mysteries. Inspired by his relentless curiosity, we are continuing our year-long journey of asking questions by exploring some of the most provocative questions Jesus posed to those he encountered in the Gospels. Whether or not we find the answers, we are guaranteed to learn something about Jesus and I imagine a lot about ourselves. So as we prepare to hear God's word, read and proclaimed, I invite you to join me in prayer. Holy God, word made flesh, we come to your scriptures hoping for a conversation with the divine. So silence our agendas, we pray. Banish our assumptions, cast out our casual familiarity, confound our expectations, slow us down just enough to become curious about what you might have to say to us today through this ancient text with its timeless questions. We know that you can, we pray that you might, and we wait with great anticipation that you will. Amen. Beloved, our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Listen, for God has spoken and is still speaking. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain to pray by himself. 
When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking towards them on the lake. But when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Beloved, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You don't have to be a serious scholar of Scripture or, quite frankly, to have even cracked the cover on a Bible to be familiar with our gospel story today. The image of walking on water has a life of its own in popular culture and in speech. We use the language of walking on water to casually describe someone who's able to perform miraculous feats or achieve extraordinary success. We say that CEO is so respected, he practically walks on water. When it comes to managing finances, she is a water walker. He's like a teacher who walks on water in the eyes of his students. Friends, you don't have to know all the details of the biblical story or even to be a person of faith to catch the drift of what's going on here. We want to be like those who can walk on water, achieve miraculous feats, do the impossible. And you don't have to sit in too many pews to have come across the story preached from a pulpit. My guess is the message sounded probably something like this. There are storms in life, beloved. Moments when forces beyond our control toss and turn us and leave us far from land and even further from hope. In these times, we are called to step out of our boats and onto the turbulent sea to seek Jesus there. And by keeping our eyes fixed on him, well, we can walk on the water and ride the waves. Now hear me out. I believe there is truth there. But if your life and faith are at all like mine, well then you know too well that these platitudes only get us so far. And in my experience, it's just to the very next storm. So we keep coming back to the text, hoping to mine its lessons for riding out the storm, for walking on water. We look to our spiritual ancestor, Peter, dear, dear Peter, for answers. What did he say and do? What did he do right? What did he do wrong? And what should he have done instead? Maybe if we can figure out what Peter should have done, well, then we can figure it out for ourselves. If Peter has little faith, well, then what would big water-walking faith look like for you and for me? 
in the face of terrifying diagnosis, in the storm of financial and relational stress, in the gale of global crises, with wave upon wave of grief for lost loved ones, lost opportunities, lost direction, lost hope. Well, what does it look like to step out in faith and walk on water? We come looking for answers from Peter about what we need to do to keep our faith above water in turbulent times. How can we stay dry as followers of Jesus? We focus on what Peter can tell us about walking on water. But I wonder if in our search for water walking tips, we are trying to pinpoint an answer to a question the story is actually uninterested in asking. I wonder if we might shift our focus instead to the question the story itself poses, the question Jesus asks not a dry Peter, but a dripping Peter. Peter, you of little faith, why did you doubt? At face value, the question seems fairly simple, doesn't it? Why did Peter doubt? Well, because he was afraid. We can understand that. Why was he afraid? Well, because he noticed the strong winds. We can definitely understand that. But the brilliance of a good question, my friends, is that it has layers. There are questions beneath the question, and at least one question underlying Jesus's is, what did, de what did Peter doubt? Maybe, just maybe, a few steps out onto those wind-whipped waters, Peter had second thoughts about whether he could actually walk on water, whether he could defy the elements and do the miraculous, even with Jesus' help. Peter maybe had enough faith to suggest this harebrained scheme to Jesus, enough faith to get out of the boat, which maybe is more faith than I have, but not enough faith or not a focused enough faith to stay above the waters. So Baywatch Jesus rescues the floundering Peter and scolds him for not being more water ready. And the other disciples in the, in the boat and us a millennia later get to learn from this object lesson. Thus ends our crash course in learning to walk on water 101. I hope you took some notes. Or maybe, my friends, there is another way. What if Peter's doubt isn't so much about walking on water? Remember, he's the one that suggested this harebrained scheme and got out of the boat. But instead, what if it is his fear that Jesus wouldn't save him when he found himself sinking? What if the story isn't at all about Peter walking on water? What if our faith isn't at all about walking on water, but sinking and calling out, Lord, save me? And what if the main action in the story, in Peter's and in our faith, is not Peter or by us, but by Jesus himself, who immediately, we are told, reached out his hand and caught him? You see, sandwiched between these two miracles, for there are two miracles, Jesus walking on water and Peter walking on water, well, is the real miracle of the story. If we read carefully, we see that Jesus greets his exhausted, terrified followers and reveals to them, it is I. In the original Greek, he says, ego eimi, I am. 
Jesus reveals himself by the divine name as the God who spoke within the burning bush, who led his people through the Red Sea, who did all those things that we named here in baptism today. It is the hand of God that immediately reaches for Peter and catches him when he begins to sink. Friends, this is no mere story about walking on water. This is nothing short but a revelation of a God whose hand has always reached out to rescue his people when they cry out for help and whose hand now extends in Jesus. What if this story isn't primarily about Peter and walking on water? What if it isn't about having faith that, we can, that can withstand the wind and waves of life? What if it is primarily about a God who meets us in the midst of it all and who in our sinking extends a hand of rescue? Today we celebrated two baptisms. We sprinkled Calvin and Julian's heads with water, but as Charlene shared last week, in ancient baptismal practices of the church, those being baptized were submerged. In baptism, friends, we proclaim a faith that doesn't walk on water but sinks to the depths and there finds the saving hands of God. What if life and faith is not about walking on water but sinking and proclaiming, Lord, save me, with words riddled with both belief and doubt? What if that is enough? Jesus responds to Peter's attempt, attempted water walking by calling him, you of little faith. Not faithless, little faith. And we find that that's more than enough. And in fact, more than it had been. Because like our own stories, we see Peter and the disciples' stories of faith evolving over the course of Matthew's gospel. Just earlier in Matthew chapter 8, the disciples again found themselves amidst of storm, a terrifying storm, but this time Jesus was with them. He was sleeping. And they cried out to him just like Peter did here, Lord, save me. And Jesus speaks and calms the storms, but the disciples wondered afterwards, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? At the conclusion of our story here in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus gets into the boat and the wind ceases. And what do the disciples, what do Peter do? They worship him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. It may be a little faith, but it's more than it has been, and it's more than enough for Jesus. Later in Matthew 16, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And as we'll see on Palm Sunday, it is Peter who answers, affirming once again, as in our text today, that Jesus is the Son of God, but that he is also the Messiah. Jesus replies, blessing Peter and giving him a new name, calling him the one on which he will build his church. Peter is a man of little faith, a faith that grows incrementally, that fumbles and falters, that leaps out of boats and swims into trouble, that sinks, that floats, that worships Jesus in one breath and denies him in the next. This is his story of faith, and it's ours. And miraculously, it's enough because Christ's hand is in it.
Church, if the story really is about what Jesus says and what Jesus does, not about the size or merits of our own faith, well then, Jesus has the last word in this story and in ours. Sandwiched between Jesus' self-revelation of I am is his message for his disciples then and now. Courage or take heart. Do not be afraid. If the reality of faith is not walking on water but sinking, well, it's not for the faint of heart. Alongside baptism, one of the ways that we profess our faith as a community is through our creeds or the confessions of faith that we have inherited. The Apostles' Creed, which we recite every Sunday before gathering at Christ's table, begins with the Latin verb credo. The verb is composed of two parts that are significant, cur, meaning heart, and dare, meaning give. Combined, it carries the sense of to give one's heart to, to trust with one's heart. Each time we profess our faith, we do not offer rote certainties of beliefs and ideas. We give our hearts, our doubting, worrying, sinking hearts with their little faith to a living, loving Christ who holds us in his hands and says, I am enough. It is enough. Your little faith is enough. And invites us to come out on the waters and to participate in the miraculous thing that he is doing. And all God's people together said, Amen.